So we'll just move on with Luke chapter 17, and we'll start with verse 11 today. And we're going to talk about the importance that we have here of God's generous grace. That is the title of our study today, God's generous grace. You got that written down? God's generous grace. God is generous in his grace. Grace is unmerited favor from God. Unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor from God. That means there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor, to gain God's grace. He simply bestows it upon us because of the kindness, the generosity, the compassion, and the mercy of his character and his nature. God, by his nature, is a gracious God. And in that grace he is incredibly generous and when God's generous grace impacts your life in its fullness it will lead us to giving him glory and praise it will when you come to terms and when you come to grips with the gracious generous grace of God it will drive you to your knees and cause you to give him glory, honor, and praise. And one of the main reasons why most of us are not on our face all of the time is because we often fail to recognize and realize how generous the grace of God really is. For if he was not gracious toward you, think about where you'd be today, and it would not be here. One of the most beautiful things that uh, we saw this weekend, uh, Aaron and Samantha came in late Sunday afternoon, got here barely in time for our get-together on Sunday night, and they were here throughout the whole week. Uh, Matthew, our oldest son, and uh, his wife and four children came, and so we had a household filled with lots of noise. And one of the things that I I really uh, thought was uh, very cute was that Our daughter-in-law was teaching her children to show appreciation and gratitude for even the small things that were done. How many moms can relate to the moms in the clip this morning at one time in your life? One time. How many dads have no clue what they were talking about? But you got a kick out of it anyway, didn't you? How many hours does it take to prepare a meal? like a Thanksgiving dinner, sometimes days. And when you present it to your family and you put it on a table, they consume it in 15 minutes, they're up and they're gone, and they're watching football. Can I get an amen, ladies? Two days for 15 minutes. And no one, hardly anyone, ever shows appreciation or gratitude for the labor that's gone, the intensive labor that's gone into preparing that scrumptious Thanksgiving meal. And then I watched my daughter-in-law instruct her children to tell their grandma, that's my wife Patty, who's in the nursery today, to go up to her and say, thank you for the meal. 
And without any reluctance, without any protest, they went up to their grandma, to my wife Patty, and said, thank you, grandma, for the great meal today. To which she says, you're welcome. She's teaching her children to show and express gratitude for a meal that's been served and presented to which they have enjoyed. And yet I wonder how many times have we given something to someone with the best of intentions and not ever received recognition for that gift, for that service, for that presentation. We've, we've not received anything. We've, we've made an effort. We've made an attempt. We have gone to great lengths to present what we wanted to present to them. And as we offered it to them, there was not any show of appreciation or, or any recognition or any gratitude at all. Our daughter, Amy, and I shouldn't talk about my children, but it's safe because they're no longer here, you know, in the, in the, in the congregation. Our daughter, Amy, was the, the world's worst at Christmas because she would open presents and just stand there and look at it. No excitement, no expression, no nothing. And you could never tell until hours later if she liked what you gave her or not by what she did with that gift, if she played with it or not. It was, it was a, a weird thing. And it was, as a parent, when you gave something to a child like that, you never really understood. And we would try to teach her and encourage her to show some sort of expression of appreciation or gratitude or some sort of something. But we always got nothing because that's just how she is and who she is. And that's okay. We learned eventually to just accept it and go on. And she's still like that today. She doesn't show as much excitement and expression. And, and yet as a parent sometimes, you kind of get a little bit, you know, a little bit, well, where, you know, where is that? And, and I think Jesus is trying to help us understand in this, this very small passage today that he's done so much for us. And there are so few times that we even show him acknowledgement, much less appreciation. And when we do, we want him to recognize it. I mean, God, I got up this morning and drove down in this dreary, cold Sunday morning in the wet and the rain and came here with a small number of people to worship you, and you should be thankful that I'm here today rather than our coming into his presence as a body, as a fellowship, and giving gratitude and praise to him rather than expecting appreciation and gratitude from him. And I wonder how many Thanksgiving meals that were shared last Thursday around a table and very few, if any, ever gave any acknowledgement, any recognition, any affirmation to Jesus, who is the giver of all gifts. And without him giving what he gave, we would not enjoy what we know today. And so here we have this message of the ten lepers and one giving thanks. And as we conclude together, we're going to be together in a Lord's Supper or communion time in which we are going to remember what Christ did for us and we together as one body are going to express our gratitude, our thanksgiving, and our praise to him. So let's take a look at the text. There are eight things this morning that gratitude does. First of all, gratitude will seize the opportunity Gratitude will always seize the opportunity. It will never put off tomorrow what it will do or can do today. Notice verse 11. Luke chapter 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. 
Jesus left Capernaum, and he is traveling south toward Jerusalem. And it's interesting as he travels to Jerusalem from Capernaum, from the northern part of the sea, there are two routes that he can take. There's the longer route, which is around Samaria, because no law-abiding, well-intended Jewish man or woman or family would travel through Samaria because they despise Samaria. Samaritans. They, they cannot stand them. They have their own place of worship. They have their own ways of worship. They are half Jews. They're not complete or whole Jews. And there's this prejudicial relationship that they have. They just despise them. They don't like them. They don't fellowship. They don't want to commune, talk, or anything with them. And so most, if not many Jews, would travel the longer route. But Jesus, taking the shorter route, is making his journey toward Jerusalem, and he's stopping along the towns and the villages on the way, and he's preaching and proclaiming his message of redemption. He's, he's engaged in ministry. He's in healing mode, and he's extending himself to these in these villages, and he is not going to pass up an opportunity to go through Samaria to this very small, insignificant village as maybe he has to go through the village or he decides to come into the village for whatever reason we don't know. Maybe, maybe to have a meal or, or maybe just to, to relax and to rest some along the journey and to have an opportunity to encounter some people there. And we learn as he encounters the people in this, this township, this little village, there's only one convert in the whole ministry of Jesus in this town. Only one, and it's one, the 110 leper. But he makes his way to this one Samaritan village on the outskirts between Samaria and Galilee. There he's there and he's coming into that city on his way to Jerusalem. Keep in mind that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This is the end. This is the conclusion of his ministry. He will never pass this way again. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for these ten lepers to receive their healing. And if they don't receive it now, they'll not receive it. He'll never pass this way again. They'll never again have this opportunity. And it's at this moment that they seize their opportunity because the opportunity is now. When do we express gratitude, praise, and thanksgiving to the Lord? Now. And we must seize that opportunity as long as we have it. And they seize their opportunity. And gratitude always seizes the opportunity. It sees the moment in the perspective, in the reality, and it gives thanks to him now. It doesn't put it off till later. Number two, gratitude will not only seize the opportunity, but it will see, it will see my helpless state. Gratitude always sees our helpless state. These lepers were aware of their condition. Nobody had to tell them they were lepers. They could see it. I don't know if you've ever seen leprosy or not, but I have had the privilege to be in a leper colony from time to time when I was a missionary kid in Brazil. And my dad, for whatever reason, took us as a family to a leper colony. We, we sat in the middle. I remember as a child sitting at this sort of this well or this, this little common area, and we were sitting there while dad went in there to preach the gospel to the lepers. And we could see from there people walking by, and they were covered 
you know, to hide their scars and their marks. And some, some lepers, their ears would fall off, or their nose would fall off, or their skin would, would deteriorate. And you could, you could tell if you were a leper that you were a leper. Nobody had to tell you you're a leper because you yourself could tell, you could see that you were a leper. You had the disease, and because of that, you were isolated from your society. You were not permitted to live with the others. It was the most feared disease in Jesus' day. And they made the lepers live in a leper colony outside of the city walls. I mean, even the enemies would not advance and to attack a leper colony for fear that they might somehow contract the disease. And they were forced to live outside of the city. And they were considered as dead. They were considered as unclean. Not just physically unclean, but spiritually unclean. I tried to shake the hands of one of our praise team earlier, and she says, no, 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 don't shake my hand. I'm, I got a cold. And I said, unclean, unclean. Well, you might consider yourself unclean if, you're, if you've got the cold. But if you had leprosy, I think that would consider that unclean, wouldn't you? But the reason why it was believed that they were unclean physically is because they were unclean spiritually. You see, the reason for the leprosy was because of a spiritual condition called sin. And it was a disease that not only affected the outside of the body, but considered a disease on the inside of the body, resulted by sin. They were unfit to be in society. They were unclean. They were unholy people. And verse 12 said, And as Jesus, he entered a village. As he proceeded to go into the village, notice, he was met by ten lepers. Now, he was not physically met. There was not a, a physical connection or contact. Remember, these lepers lived outside of the city at some distance, it says, who stood at a distance from Jesus. They were not going to violate this, this lawful thing that they were held by to be in close contact with someone else that did not have leprosy. And so they were at a distance, and Jesus was coming into the city gates as he was approaching the wall into the city. These lepers who live from the outside are going to scream, they're going to cry out for his help. But it mentions the fact that they have leprosy and they were aware of their helpless state. Why was it helpless? Because there was no medication to heal leprosy. And the only one that could cure them of their leprosy was God. They knew they needed a divine healing. Not just a physical healing, but a spiritual healing. I wonder if you are aware of your helpless state without Jesus. How helpless are you without Christ? I think one of the main reasons why many of us and are having a hard time with this whole thing of, of giving gratitude and honor and glory to the Lord is because we, we sometimes, and we're going to see this in a minute again, we sometimes believe that we're self-made men. We're self-made. And that we have some effort, some work ethic, some part in our own sanctification, our own position or standing with God. But the fact is that in and of ourselves, apart from Christ, we are totally helpless. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says the wage of sin is death. We, without Christ, are helpless. And when we come to fully recognize, understand our helplessness, 
our total lostness, our bankruptcy, our inability to do anything about our condition that drives us to our knees and we fall on our face and, and we just want to give gratitude to God because without him, we have nothing, we are nothing, and we can become nothing and we have a hope for nothing because we're helpless. And yet we fight that little inner thing called pride, <laughs> that little guy named self. Isn't he a rascal? I despise him. And he likes to hop on the throne of our hearts and scream and yell, me, 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 me. And, and, and the whole time the Spirit said, no, 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 no. You're helpless without Jesus. Gratitude not only seizes the opportunity and sees my helplessness, but number three, it seeks the Lord Jesus alone. It seeks the Lord. Notice what it says in verse 13. Well, let's, let's just go back to verse 12. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. They were at a distance. Verse 13. And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. I find that interesting. And they lifted up their voices together. These, these guys were in such a helpless state that one voice alone would have been insufficient to reach the ears of Christ. Two was not enough. Three was inadequate. Four, five, six, seven. It took all ten in unison like a chorus together, screaming and crying out to Christ so that they could be heard. And they were together in unison. And they cried out as one voice. And they acknowledged, first of all, that Jesus was Savior. They call him Jesus. That means Yahweh saves. They recognized and believed that Jesus alone was their Savior. They called him Jesus. He was Yeshua. He was the Savior. And they were putting their hope in him and only him and no one else. If he didn't save them, no one else could. So they believed that he was their savior. He was Jesus. But notice he was also master, meaning that he was Lord over all. He was sovereign God. He was more powerful than their disease. And they knew that as savior, he could save them by his power from their helpless state. He could cure them of their leprosy. He's master. He's sovereign. He is Lord over disease. He's Lord over sin. He's Lord over sin. And the only way you're going to get victory over sin is through the Lord. But notice they cry out, have mercy on us. They acknowledge that Jesus was a person who cares. He's a person of compassion. They had no right to call upon Jesus. Maybe not just one was a Samaritan. Maybe they were all Samaritans. But they had heard of Jesus, and they had heard that he was the Savior. They had heard of his power, that he was sovereign over disease, and he could 
forgive and heal and cleanse from sin, and they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Don't treat us as we deserve to be treated. Have mercy on us. That's what mercy is. Grace is, is giving us what we don't deserve. It's giving us. Mercy is don't treat us as we deserve to be treated. In other words, don't treat me as I deserve to be treated. I am undeserving of your compassion and your love and your concern and your attention. We don't deserve it, but Lord, have mercy on us. And they seek Jesus as their deliverer, and they seek Jesus alone. The only one that can save us from our condition of sin and our depravity is Jesus and Jesus alone. So we must seize the opportunity. We must see the helpless state. We must seek the Lord Jesus only. Number four, we must stand on God's word. They stood on God's word. They believed in the words of Jesus. He's about to give them some instruction, and they just simply believe in what he says to do. They, they simply just believe him. I know that sounds simplistic, but that's exactly what happens in verse 14. And when he saw them, when he saw them, Jesus sees them. That's, it. that's important. He sees them. You may not think that Jesus sees you. That you're obscure and you're invisible and that he's unattentive and unaware of your condition and your need. But he sees you like he sees them. He saw them. He heard them and he looked and he saw them. And when he saw them, he had compassion on them. He saw their need and their helpless state as he sees yours. And he speaks and he says to them, go, sow yourselves to the priest." Now, I wondered about how he spoke to that. Did he, hey, go show your, you know, did he, did he yell back? He had a commanding voice. I mean, he spoke to hundreds, if not thousands, on a hill. We call the Sermon on the Mount, and everybody heard what he said. It was a, he had a commanding voice and a commanding presence, but I've got a feeling that Jesus probably moved a little bit closer to where they were so they could hear exactly, specifically, clearly what he wanted to communicate. And he said, go. Show yourselves to the priest. In other words, I want you to get up from your present condition, and I want you to begin to put your faith in what I'm telling you. I will heal you if you will move from where you are to where you need to be. And he simply gave them this word. He didn't touch them. He didn't say, be healed. I mean, other miracles Jesus touched. There was a leper earlier on that Jesus actually physically touched him, and he was healed. He didn't say, you, you know, be healed, you're clean, I forgive you, whatever. He just said, I want you to get up from where you are and begin to move in a direction of your healing. And he says to them, I want you to trust my word. And just with that, how many words are those? Somebody count them. Tell me how many there are. Come on. Seven words in the English. He speaks seven words to them. And upon hearing the words of Christ, they believe in what he says. If I get up from where I am and begin to move to where he's told me to go, I will be healed. And they just simply believe. Do you believe his word? Really? Honestly? Well, you know, he, he really didn't mean that. Uh, you know, he meant that for, for maybe Bob over here, but he didn't mean that for me, you know? Bob's at a higher level than me, and he's one of God's favorites, so therefore God's word's not really for me. This really doesn't apply. You know, yeah. 
Do you really believe that he will do what he says? Do you really believe that what he says we have, we have? Do you really believe when he says go, that you can go and be in his sovereign protective? Do you really believe in the word of God? Is it his infallible, inerrant, completely trustworthy word? Now, I know on the surface, most of us would say, I believe that. But I must admit there are times in my life I go, really, God, for me? Really? And there's a, a crisis of belief, isn't there? We're, we're either going to trust and believe in what he says or we're going to reject what he says or maybe just lack the confidence and, and the trust and, and the validation of what he says. But really, when God speaks and when we hear him speak, we can rise up from where we are and Take him by faith and trust his word and proceed by faith and it will become reality. Four things we've seen. Gratitude will seize the opportunity. See my helpless state. Seek the Lord Jesus. Stand on God's word. Number five, step out in faith. Gratitude will step out in faith. Notice the last part of verse 14, small but very powerful last part of verse 14. And as they went, they were cleansed. As they went, they were cleansed. As they. Who's the they? The ten lepers. All ten were together. All ten believed in the power of the word of Christ. All ten believed in the healing power of Jesus. And if they would get out from their condition and begin to walk by faith toward that, they believed that he had the power to heal. And all ten together trust the power of Christ to heal. And as they are trusting and moving toward their healing, they are being miraculously transformed by the power of Jesus and they are being cleansed of their leprosy. It's an immediate, instantaneous thing that happens to them. One step, I don't know, maybe a finger grows back. Who knows? And a nose goes back. I don't, I don't, I don't know to what extent it was, but they were, they were cleansed. They were healed. And as they're moving by faith, trusting in the power of Jesus and his words, they are instantaneously, immediately becoming cleansed as they're moving toward that which Jesus told them to go. Now, it wasn't their faith that cured them. It was their faith in the power of Jesus to cure them, and it was his power, not their faith, who cured them. It was Jesus' power, and as they put their faith in Christ, they were being transformed. They were being changed. You're not going to go into this transformational work that Christ wants to bring into your life as long as you stay where you are. You want me to say that again? You are not going to be transformed by the power of Christ as long as you stay where you are. You must rise up from where you are and by faith begin to put your trust in his word and step by step, slowly, little by little, as you're moving by faith in the power of his word, trusting Jesus, he can and will transform you and he will make you a new creation. And you will reflect more and more the likeness of Jesus. 
And some of us have camped way too long where we are, and we're wondering why our lives are not being changed, why there's not a greater work of transformation in our life. It's because we've stagnated, we have become stale, we have sat and soaked way too long where we are. And he's saying, rise up. Turn and follow my lead, trust my word, and step by step on this journey, on this pilgrimage of faith, I will slowly, inevitably transform your life. You won't look anything like you did before. And some of us look too much like we did before. We haven't had that much of a transformational work because we're not making the journey of faith, moving into, moving toward, moving forward, the transformational work of Christ in our lives. But gratitude steps out in faith. Let me give you the five. I know you're writing them down. Number one, gratitude will seize the opportunity. Number two, it will step. It will see my helpless state. I'm sorry. It will seek the Lord Jesus. It will stand on God's word. Number five, it will step out in faith. Number six, it will shout praise to God. It will shout praise to God. Turn to your neighbor and say, this is where we get Pentecostal. Come on, come on, turn to your neighbor and say, this is where we get Pentecostal. Charismatic. Or like I like to call it, whack-o-matic. That's out of the norm. That means out of the box. A little like Mark Mattingly. Yeah? I see you over there in that bumblebee shirt you got on. I'm not sure about that, man. Anyway, looked like the Pittsburgh Steelers last Sunday. Anyway, I am famously known by my nephew, who is the kicker of the Pittsburgh Steelers, by the way, Mr. Matt Willard. Thank you for that. Number six, shout praise to God. Notice verse 15. Then one of them, then one of them, all ten rose up together as a team, as one unit, are moving into, by faith, into their transformation, into their healing. All ten are being healed. But there's one Samaritan, the most unlikely of the ten, the Samaritan. This was a slap in the face of the Jewish people that may be listening to him. A Samaritan. They got their own place of worship. They got their own religious beliefs. They're half Jews. They're half breeds. We don't. We despise them. A Samaritan. One of them who is a Samaritan. Notice he pauses. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he, as he's moving with them together, he stops. Get a picture of this. And they're going on. I wonder if he said, hey, guys, let's stop a minute. Let's assess the situation. They don't stop. They keep right on going. But he stops, and he analyzes himself physically, and he all of a sudden recognizes the power of Christ healing him of his leprosy. He pauses, and he, he stops in his tracks. And, and, and when he saw that he was healed, notice he turned back. He's going with them, and he stops, and they're going on ahead, and he turns back, hoping that, that he's going to find Jesus back where he left him. Because he has no, no way of knowing where Jesus is, and the only 
place he knows where Jesus was was where he last saw him. And he's going to make his way back to that encounter with Christ. And he's hoping that Jesus is still there. And so he turns back and the others are going out and he's going back to where he came from. He returns back, turns back, notice, praising God with a loud voice. What's he doing? He's turned, the others are going, he's turned back. And he's doing the Pentecostal Mishila dance. All right? And he's, he's shouting at the top of his lungs. He's not doing the Baptist thing. Praise God from whom all blessings You know, he's, he's shouting. Why? He's, uh, he's got a heart filled with gratitude. He doesn't care who hears. He has been healed. And Jesus has healed him, and he wants everyone to know, not only am I healed, but it's Jesus who healed me. And he's shouting at the top of his lungs, making his way back to where he last encountered Jesus. All he can think about is praising God, giving glory and honor to God, and giving recognition to Christ as he seeks out the Lord who has healed him. Verse 16, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. What happens when he finds Jesus? He presents himself in this incredible, humiliating way. He puts his, the idea of the text is, as soon as he gets to Jesus, he immediately instantaneously he doesn't hesitate he doesn't pause he doesn't think about it boom on the ground instantly bow at jesus feet face in the dirt continuing to praise and to worship submitting himself to the lord jesus and giving him honor for what christ has done for him gratitude is loud It's not some religious practice that is educated and sophisticated and, you know. You follow what I'm saying? When your heart is bursting with gratitude over the transforming work that Jesus has done in your life, some of you, you, you heard me sing over there, didn't you? I sing loud, don't I? Huh? Some of it's off key, isn't it? I don't care. Mike McClellan's on vacation this weekend. He can't sing a lick. But I don't care, Mike, if you're listening today. Let it out. When you're boiling up with gratitude to Jesus, you're just going to sing. Number seven, after you shout praise to God, show appreciation to the Lord. Show appreciation to the Lord. There's one leper who shows appreciation. Then Jesus answers. I want you to notice here, Jesus, take this incredible opportunity here to speak to the crowd that's there. He, he, this guy's down here, you know, worshiping him, and he says, uh, you guys here need to pay attention here. He just kind of just ignores this guy here for a minute. And he's going to use him as a, as a living example, as, as an opportunity to teach the people here about this guy who's down here. Okay? And he, and he speaks to them and he says, We're not ten cleansed. 
Sounds like an odd question, doesn't it? We're not 10 cleansed? What's Jesus doing? He's explaining to the group who are oblivious what has just happened. They are clueless. They have no idea. There's this one guy here who's fall on his face, immediately praising Jesus, not letting him go, and he's saying, hey guys, there were 10 of these who got healed. I, I healed 10 of them. And then notice, where are the other nine? He's, he's right here. He's saying, I expected there to be 10, but there's only one. That's what I expected. I expected everyone who received cleansing of those 10, I expected all 10 to be here, but in spite of my expectation and my hope, there's only one. And then notice the third question. He says, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? He's exhorting those that are there. There's an exhortation here. There's almost like a uh, an application that should be convictional in their hearts. And I'm sure these words pierced their hearts when Jesus said, you, you, each and every one of you should be on your face. But you and your religious practice, your pious devotion to Jehovah, to Yahweh, your, your pious religious practice, you think that you are self-made, you think that you're, you're pious by your own works, you need to acknowledge that you are helpless and that I as the Savior alone should receive the honor and, the worth, and worthy of the praise. But they were too pious for that. They were too religious in their man-made religious practices, in their phony worship, to show appreciation. How do you show your appreciation to Jesus? And lastly, we need to substantiate my faith. I need to substantiate my faith. Gratitude will substantiate my faith. Before we close, I'll give you all eight together. You ready? All eight. Number one, gratitude will seize the opportunity. Number two, it will see my helpless state. Number three, it will seek the Lord Jesus. Number four, it will stand on God's word. Number five, it will seek out in faith, step out in faith. Number six, it will shout praise to God. Number seven, gratitude will show appreciation. And last, gratitude substantiates my faith. It will substantiate my faith. And Jesus now then redirects. He's, he's addressed the crowd. He directs his attention to the man who's there. He's not going to forget the guy who's there. And he'll not forget you. Rise and go your way. There's a commission here to rise, to get up from your present, to get up from your past, and to move on into the provision and the promise and the power that you have received. To rise up, to rise up from where you once were, never to repeat and never to return again. For once you have been touched by Jesus, your life will never be the same. Rise up, he said. And then he says, go your way. Go your way. Live your life. But as you live your life, continue to testify. Continue to be a witness to everyone you come in contact of the healing 
grace and mercy that you have received. Sound like the Great Commission to me, Brother Gail. And then he says this incredible word of confirmation. And it, I, I like to think here that Jesus just says, you don't need to go to the priest. I'm the high priest. Just, you don't need to go. I'm the son of God, the high priest. I'm going to confirm your healing. Notice he says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Again, it wasn't his faith that healed him. It was his faith in the healing power of Christ. But this man got an extra blessing on this day. For there were nine lepers who received physical healing. And there was one who received complete healing, and that is spiritual healing, because he put his faith in Jesus as his Savior and his Lord. And it was that faith that faith that caused him to rise above the other nine. And those nine, they missed out. You know, there's a thing called common grace. You know what common grace is? Common grace is the grace that God bestows upon everyone. It's common grace. You know what common grace is? Life. Life. The ability to breathe and to live. That's common grace. Because I believe that, that no life begins without God. God is the giver of physical life. I don't care what the circumstances are surrounding the conception of this life, but it is God who conceives life, it is God who gives life, and it is God who sustains life. And if you know anybody that's breathing today, they are breathing because of God's common grace. He gives them physical life undeserving and unmerited common grace. But there's covenant grace, which is the greater grace. And that's a covenant grace that comes only through faith in Jesus. A grace that is more than sufficient to cover our sin against God. But the Bible says, deacons, if you'll come forward, let's prepare for the Lord's Supper. The Bible says, 1 John chapter 5, beginning with verse 5, 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we, that's, that's the condition, if we confess, then he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sin. I don't know of a better weekend than to celebrate with a heart filled with gratitude of all that we possess in Jesus today than today. So let me ask you to just bow your head for just a moment. Every head bowed and every eye closed for just a second. And I'd like to invite you today just to reflect about your hopeless state without Jesus. 
Where were you? Helpless, hopeless, eternally condemned, in darkness, in a sea of despair, in a state of lostness. And he saw you. He saw you. And he handpicked you out of a crowd. And he spoke into your life. And as he spoke into your life, he revealed himself to you as your Savior, as the Lord over your sin. And he said, if you'll just place your faith and trust in me as, as Savior and Lord of your life, I'll cleanse you of your sin. Every one of us in here has common grace. We have life, physical life. But it's the spiritual life as well that we want to give gratitude, honor, and praise today to Jesus. Is your heart welling up with gratitude for all that you possess and all that you have in Him? Would you just this, just this few moments today prepare your heart and ask God, Lord, forgive me of my lack of gratitude. I think all of us should pray that prayer because the reality is that not, a, not every one of us in here has lived completely with a heart of gratitude. We have failed miserably to, to well up inside with a, a gratitude like this one leper that we've read today. Or maybe we've failed to sustain that kind of gratitude. We've let the world and our own works and other things rob us of a, the fullness of the gratitude of Jesus. Would you just say, Lord, I, I'm sorry I've not been as grateful as I should be. Today I, I want to repent of my lack of gratitude, my, my failure, my sin. Today, as I express in this time of communion, this Lord's Supper, I want this to be an expression of my heart of how grateful I am as I remember what you've done on the cross for me. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants to cleanse us today as we prepare for this time of communion and celebration and remembrance. Take just a moment. And as you take this moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and then our deacons will then pass out the elements of the Lord's Supper. So take this moment and just give Him praise, give Him honor, give Him glory, and give Him thanks.